Instead of talking about the beginning of a depression, we're talking about the end of a recession eight months after taking office. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Friday, September 4th. That was Vice President Joe Biden yesterday at the Brookings Institution saying critics are just wrong. The stimulus spending is working. Alex, may I have the indicator, please? You may. (laughs) Thank you for asking so politely. You're welcome. Um, Today, the indicator is, it's pretty much the only choice of an indicator you could make today, 9.7%. That is... Of course, the unemployment rate, it went up by a third of a percent to the highest level since 1983, when the rate was at 10.1 percent. And as we find ourselves saying all too often around here, this really bad news, an additional 200,000 or so people off of the payrolls, actually counts as good news because the drop-off was a lot less than it was earlier in the year. Things are still getting worse. They're just getting worse much more slowly, which we hope may be the first step towards things getting better. Let's hope. Now, when you compare things today to things two or three years ago, obviously the economy is doing a lot worse right now. Yes. But we here on Planet Money, we don't want to just go back two or three years. We want to make ourselves feel good. So we go back a lot farther in time. (laughs) Right. All the way to 800 years ago. How do our lives stack up against people living in the Middle Ages? So in July, we talked to a historian, Philip Daylater, about the economics of being a medieval peasant living in France in the year 1200. Daylater explained that life was really, really hard. Life expectancy was around 35. People were always hungry. They worked on farms that they didn't own. And the elites, you know, the knights were constantly coming over and stealing their stuff and making them into indentured servants and the like. And life was not getting better with time. A medieval peasant in 1200's life was not really that much better than a Roman peasant a thousand years earlier and was pretty much like a farmer, say, in the 1700s. Right. You didn't have this technological progress like we do today. You didn't have this constant upward growth in quality of life, in part because the economic system was set up to discourage innovation. So say you were a shoemaker and you came up with a better, more labor-saving way to make your medieval shoe. The Shoemakers Guild, which you belong to, would burn your house down because they didn't want more shoes. They wanted the number of shoes limited so that they could charge their high price. So that was Europe. Uh, We recently got an email, which I'm holding in my hand here, from listener Alan Munter. He says that he's been... I've been enjoying the discussions on the podcast with the Middle Ages historian and the economic comparisons between then and now. But most of his information about the Middle Ages is European. I was wondering if Asia and Africa were similarly brutal or if it was primarily the feudal system in Europe that contributed to the miserable lives. I'd think disease and famine would be similar elsewhere, but were they? Well, we'll have to talk about Africa on a later podcast. But, Adam, you did call historian Kenneth Pomerantz, who is an expert on Asia, and he said, of course, Asia is a big place and life was different in different parts. But he said, let's compare Day Leaders Village in Bordeaux, France, to a similar village in China's Yangtze River Valley. He said the rough outline is pretty much the same as it, in China as it is in France. Most people are incredibly poor compared to today's standards. They can't survive more than a couple bad crops in a row. And life is not improving very much as time passes. We think that human life expectancy 
at birth is something like 35 in China at, you know, sometime around the year zero. And it's probably still about 35 in 1800. So the big broad picture is not that different from, you know, what was described in Europe. Um, the two things that are probably different is, as I said, people have, have a few more material goods, right? They're more likely to have, you know, some, you know, a few more utensils, a little bit more clothing, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not sure, but we think they probably pay for that by working harder. Um, there's a pretty good reason to think that at least from the year, let's say, 1,000 onward, the average amount of time you spend laboring is creeping slowly upward. I see. So they're not more productive. It's not that right. they, they, they work the same amount of hours but get more stuff for it. They're actually right. just working harder. Right. They're working harder. They're, you know, they're planting two crops a year on the land instead of one, you know, which is a tremendous achievement from the point of view of you know, if your goal is to have as many humans as possible living off a finite earth, then going from single cropping to double cropping is a huge achievement. In terms of the number of days a year you work... That also you know, doubles. Yeah, it doesn't really double, but it goes up. Right. Right. So... All right. Can you, you know, take us to that village in the Yangtze Valley? And what would be a good year? Uh, would 1,200? That, that's around where, where we were in Bordeaux, France. Would that be a, a good year? Yeah, 1,200 is not a bad time. By 1,200... Um, intensive rice cropping with with lots of irrigation is in place. Um, that means a particular kind of work year. Gradually over time, as population increases, average farm size shrinks. Women get out of agriculture because the farms just don't need their labor as they get smaller. Um, the men work the farm alone. The oh, women... the farms get smaller because of this double season you can you don't no, need as right you can get more per acre and on the other hand there are more people right. so you know you can see it as a push or a pull but either way right the average farm size shrinks women get out of agriculture go into increasingly things like textile production um and that's becoming a second source of income for a lot of families you're not just making clothes for yourself you're making cloth to sell um, by the 1500s, it's become a proverb that the lower Yangza clothes the entire empire, which isn't quite true, but it's, you know, it's a proverb because it's at least partly true. Right. Um, the biggest change for an average person over that period of time is probably not economic but social. Social? It's, yeah. It's that essentially, bit by bit, the power of elites in the countryside retreats. Diminishes. That, right, diminishes. That in the 1200s, a lot of farming is being done on fairly large estates owned by people who are both big landlords and politically powerful and who employ... Um, they employ full-time managers to handle their farms. They're call those managers are calling the shots about what gets grown. And a lot of the farm actual people who do the actual farming 
live in a state of kind of semi-bondage. Okay, and that sounds a lot like what uh, Daylater described of medieval Europe, that there's these yeah. knights who live in castles and they kind of – you, you got to – you got to work for them. You got to pay them taxes. They can sort of show up and do whatever they want, kill you, beat you up, take your stuff. Yeah. It's never quite as extreme in the Lower Yangtze as it is in parts of Europe. But as a general picture, that's, that's not bad. Um, the, and then over time, what happens for various reasons is the elites move to the cities. They. The farms become small farms run by you know, small, small holding or small tenant farmers. They're paying, if they're tenants, they're paying a fairly hefty rent. But the two key things are, first of all, they're in charge. They're making the decisions about, you know, do we grow cotton? Do we grow rice? The farmers we... are. Right. Um, the landlord has become an absentee who pretty much, he sends an agent once a year to pick up his rent, and that's about it. Um, in many cases, he has no clue even what the name of his tenant is. Um, and increasingly, the rent is a fixed rent, not a percentage, which means that if you, the farmer, can figure out a way to squeeze a little bit extra out of the land... That's yours to keep. Now, that's a huge difference because one thing we talked to Daylater about is all the forces that prevented economic advance and progress, which primarily were exactly what you just identified, that e even if you were the most ingenious, uh, productivity-enhancing, innovative farmer, it didn't really matter because the knight would come along and steal your surplus. If you were in an innovative um, tradesman or, or, or you know, uh, bread maker or shoemaker, the, the guild would come along and burn down your house. So there's really it – was, it wasn't just there was no incentive for productivity. There was huge disincentive. Yeah, and that, that's quite different in the Lower Yangtze. Um, it really is the case that if you can squeeze out a little bit more per acre, it's yours. Um, now, that said, one thing you should remember is that the incentive is if you could squeeze out a little bit more per acre, not per labor hour, right? And so, in fact, the system encourages you to increase output by working yourself really, really hard. And why is that? Well, couldn't you just figure out some productivity enhancement and take a long nap? Well, you, you, sh you could. Um, but again, you know, you've got relatively small farms for which people are willing to pay high but fixed rents, right? So the incentive is, okay, this is my piece of land. It yields me, you know, a surplus, but not a huge surplus. So enough for my family to eat and then for me to sell a little bit. Right, for me to sell a little bit, for me to, you know, maybe, you know, accumulate a few possessions, maybe, maybe... Um, you know, become a local money lender with a little bit of surplus who lends to his neighbors and therefore accumulates a little bit more, maybe to buy an improved loom so that, um, you know, so that my wife can weave a little bit more cloth, et cetera, et cetera. 
maybe if I'm a bit of a gambler, to take part of my land and put it into sericulture, into raising silkworms, which is a fairly risky but potentially very high return enterprise. Risky because the worms might die? Right, because the worms might die. They, they're incredibly finicky creatures. You have to get everything just right, um, including the temperature in the shed has to be extremely precisely regulated. And you know, these are people who don't have thermometers. They're doing it by feel, you know. And if they get it wrong, the silkworms don't produce. Um, it's amazing, actually, that they achieve as much as they do. But anyway, to get back to your main point, so there are a lot of incentives to try and squeeze a little bit more out, but there aren't that many people who are feeling so secure that they say, gee, you know, I'll take some of my additional income as leisure. I'll forego a little bit more in order to have some time off. Right. You're more likely to say, how do I squeeze just a bit more out of this? And within the constraints of, you know, you can't do agriculture 360 days a year, et cetera. So within certain kinds of constraints, people work themselves pretty damn hard. I see. What I find, one of the reasons I love economic history, and I really, really do love economic history, is, is it does help me see how things that I just think of as the natural order of things are actually the result of a particularly strange, you know, th moment in history that I was born in. So it just seems natural to me that... I'd try to get home as close to five or six as I can and lie on the couch and watch TV and have a weekend and have a few weeks during the year where I do nothing. And you're making me realize that embedded in that possibility are all sorts of assumptions like the fact that I work at a place that's likely to keep me employed, that mm -hmm. I don't need to claim all my surplus right now, work so hard that I get enough food that if the winter is really bad, I won't die. Um, right. And the and that we have this thing called a banking system, which at least most of the time means that surplus I put aside will still be there. I can transfer wealth from now to the future. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So there are lots and lots. And you can transfer wealth from the future to now. By borrowing. Right. right. Yeah. Um, which is extremely hard in most pre-modern societies because, well, many reasons. But one is most people don't trust your future property claims very much. But it sounds like if someone said... Hey, you got to go back in time and live in 1200. Um, you can live in Bordeaux or the Lower Yangtze Valley. I'd, I'd want to live in the Lower Yangtze Valley, it sounds like. Yeah, I think you probably would. I mean, especially if you didn't know what class you were going to be, right? If, you know, if you were reasonably sure, you know, you were going to be a member of the elite, you know, then there are lots of places that are probably pretty good. But I would argue that if there was a high risk, you were going to be poor, and of course there is. Because the vast majority of people were people poor. are poor. That the Lower Yangtze was one of the best poor people's places on earth until probably the eve of the Industrial Revolution. Okay, so we'll play more of Pomerantz's interview on a later podcast. Yeah, he went on to explain something I found really fascinating. He said that if you were around in, say, 1500 and you were able to fly around the world and you also knew that there was an industrial revolution coming a few hundred years later, be a pretty remarkable person, of course. But he said that it would be absolutely crystal clear to you the place where this industrial revolution would happen is China's Yangtze River Valley. That is the place where all the conditions are in place for this industrial revolution to happen, 
Of course, it didn't happen in China. It happened in the United Kingdom. And uh, Pomerantz talks about why that was. But Alex, we'll have to wait for another day because you and I have to get back to work. We had an edit with Ira on our piece that will be on This American Life uh, two weeks from today, the big piece on regulatory reform. Right, and we have to do another draft by Wednesday. Um, And I don't think we want to work on this weekend. So, Yeah, let's get typing. Mm -hmm. That's it for us today. Please send your thoughts to planetmoney at npr.org. Or visit our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening.